what I've learned in, in my 25 years is the biggest wealth you can create is freedom and choice. It, it's not the money, but quite often you need the money to give you that freedom of choice of uh, what do you want to do today, who do you want to hang around with, where do you want to physically do it. You've generally got to have money to be able to do that. Otherwise, like most people, will be um, doing the rat race. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests every minute of every day. We're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen not let it happen. You will hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash invested. Thanks for listening, and now... Let's get invested. Welcome, Freedom Fighters. We all want to be living the dream, but who's really doing it? And if they are, how do they do it? Well, for most people, living the dream, or LTD in our abbreviated everything social media world, is still just a distant, elusive goal. But today's guest has been living his dream lifestyle for the last 17 years. Now, just let me give you a small taste of how he and his family live at large. He doesn't work mornings. He has the pleasure of driving around in a Lamborghini and he races supercars. He's continuously flying to exotic overseas locations about 12 to 15 times a year where he flies first or business class without paying for the privilege. He jet sets around in choppers and cruises luxury yachts and he lives in a Sydney Harbourfront luxury apartment. All this while building his $15 million property portfolio that he started from nothing at the age of 21. Are you jealous yet? Well, how's he done it? And how can you do it? Chris Gray is notoriously known as Australia's most recognised property expert and is the man who everyone loves to hate and hates to love. You'll know Chris from his TV shows on Sky Business, and he's currently hosting Your Money Live. You may also have read some of his books, including Your Effortless Empire, which echoes many of the key principles reinforced in my book, The Freedom Formula. Chris has that rare gift and happy knack of making the complex sound simple and for ignoring the confusing noise, cutting to the chase, and getting to the nub of any issue. He's a Cockney rebel with a cause. He's a man that every hot-blooded Aussie bloke wants to be. So please enjoy this awesome chat with Chris Gray. Hi, Frame Fighters. It's Bushy Martin. And I want to start today by asking you a question. Are you living the dream? Or is it still just this distant, imaginary horizon that seems decades away? Well, you may be interested to know that it's a lot more touchable than you think. And today's guest, Chris Gray, is an absolutely living example of how to live the best of all worlds. 
Now, I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Chris last year at the National Property Buyers Expo, where I introduced him on stage, and I just love his down-to-earth, no-bullshit approach. So, welcome aboard, Chris Gray. Wonderful. Thanks for having me along. Mate, uh, now, you're a man that needs no introduction, and you've been often quoted as Australia's most recognised property expert with the books that you've written, the uh, TV shows that uh, you've had, and I think most recently moved into Your Money with a new program on Sky. But uh, for those who haven't had an opportunity to really enjoy your journey so far, can you uh, just start by painting a picture of what your current lifestyle looks like, mate? Yeah, and this is the point that uh, a lot of people would hate me, and I'll probably hate myself as well, that uh, <laughs> if you follow me on Facebook or something and all the stuff I do. But look, the reason I do it is I, I hear once a week or once a fortnight of someone having cancer or dying or a heart attack or something like that, and what it's done is it may, makes me push harder on my lifestyle because I don't want to be one of the people that literally passes away and on the deathbed they say, oh, I should have spent less time in the office. I really try and live my life. And so I, I say to my wife that, look, if I die tomorrow, I want to be happy and, and I think I would be happy. Obviously, you never know till it happens. Yeah. But look, I don't want the same day. I don't want the same week. I want to do different things. Ideally, I never put anything in the diary that I don't want to do. Um, and to me, that's the biggest luxury in life. Yeah. Um, I probably travel overseas 10 or 15 times a year, kind of business or first class. Yeah. And we'll get into that later on. I don't even pay for it. So it's, uh, it's nice and easy. So I've got all these frequent flyer points trying to do different things. Yeah. Um, I'm into my cars. So I've got a, like a Lamborghini that I've had for a long time, but now I've moved into a 1912 Model T. I've just come <laughs> back from uh, racing in the outback in a rally car, but I actually, my rally car is a stretch limousine that's been converted, so it's the most useless <laughs> rally car in the world, but I think it's the coolest thing. <laughs> so I'm not actually hung up on having a million-dollar car or a private jet or these things, but like I fly helicopters, but I just rent them. So I guess yeah. one of the TV programs I'm trying to create is how to live the life of a multimillionaire without being one. Love it. So I think you can have a lot of these toys but you don't need to be super wealthy. You just need to have the right mindset. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. that You and I share a similar passion for that, and it's something that I often say to people. It's it's not about ownership. It's about access. So if you can access a lifestyle at a fraction of the cost of owning a thing, and the only thing you own are things that are actually making money for you, then that's that's where you've got the opportunity to real, really enjoy the, the best of all worlds. worlds right? Can you sort of expand on that a bit in your own context? Yeah, and, and look, I heard it at a seminar years and years ago that sometimes it's not even owning the assets, it's controlling the assets because obviously a lot of us actually um, hold our investments within trust and corporate structures and stuff. Yep. And it is a lot different these days. So I, I was brought up in the UK. Mum and dad, like my dad went to Cambridge University, very academic, and became a doctor. So I was brought up to have a job for life, buy a home, pay it off, do all those normal kind of things. Yep. Whereas now my portfolio is kind of, 15 to 17 or 18 million or so, but I still don't live in my family home. Yes. I worked out the rent vesting concept probably 10 to 15 years ago, and I think I can live in a house three or four times what I could afford to buy. So I'm happy being a renter, and I've got no uh, no issues with that. And again, is the cars I buy or the Lamborghini is appreciated in value versus depreciated. I'm into boats, but I'm into a syndicated boat. And so it cost me an eighth or a sixteenth of the price of um, buying a $2 million boat. Yep. And I rent my helicopters and things like that. Yep. So 
old school parents' generation is you've got to own things and rich people think you need to own things, whereas if you can have the access without any of the liabilities, like the chopper, I just turn up at the airport, I jump in the chopper and I walk away. I don't look at anything. I don't need to worry about it. And I do the same with the boat. It's just, it's not worth having the ownership just to say that you own it because it's going to cost you 10 times the price. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a bit of a paradigm shift for a lot of, a lot of typical Aussies. And you, you mentioned the UK experience. It's, and I guess most of us, uh, or a lot of Aussies have flowed through from that. Uh, colonial outlook of, you know, work hard, uh, put money into super and then tick off the bucket list if you've managed to survive that long and live off the super. Uh, you, you made a really good point in uh, one of your most recent books, The Effortless Empire, about uh, the real cost of doing nothing being potentially the biggest cost of all. Uh, along those lines, can you just expand on a bit that for us, Chris? Yeah, look, I always find that people want to try and find the perfect environment. So they want high capital growth. They want high rent. They want it easy to borrow money from the bank. They want it easy to find property and they want low interest rates. And you're never going to get those five things. Like I've been investing for 25 years. You've never had all those things. And so my, my whole thing is, is at some point you've just got to jump in. And my decision process is, is I buy when I've got the cash to buy. And I've got the cash to hold on for the negative gearing for this kind of short to medium term. And so I probably bought half of my portfolio in the GFC. Everyone told me not to do it. They said, property market's not going to grow for a few years. And it's almost like exactly that time now. People are saying the same thing. Yes. Why pay the 10 or 20 grand negative gearing when the property's not going to grow? But I got to buy properties that were 10 out of 10. And they ticked all of my boxes. I didn't have to fight on price. I still paid a reasonable price because the properties I buy, they're never half price. They're always in demand. Yep. But at least I wasn't paying 5 or 10% over. Yep. And then what I actually found out was the properties were growing in value, but because the general market wasn't, it wasn't hitting the papers and the valuers wouldn't value it that way. But two years after the GFC, so I think I bought in 2010 for like 600 grand for properties in Coogee. And then suddenly, two years later, 2012, they were being valued at 800. So it had gone up 30%, even though everyone said it wasn't going. And I think it's exactly that point in time now. Yes. Whereas everyone else, what happened, we were saying on Sky for years, you should buy now, be contrarian, it's a good time to buy, but no one listened. And then it probably took people, when the market did recover, six or 12 months to actually get in the market because suddenly everyone was in. Suddenly you couldn't buy the ideal property. You had to get an eight or a nine out of 10. Suddenly you're then paying 50 or 100 grand over because there's so much competition and people have left. And that's what happens. The market suddenly does jump 20 or 30%. And all these people, all the naysayers, suddenly they were buying properties at 800 grand that I'd bought at 600 two years before. Yeah. Yeah, but it's really hard to be contrarian because you've got your friends and family against you. You've got society, your colleagues, everyone's saying, no, don't do it. You're foolish. And if you're not in property 100% of the time, you're never going to have the balls or the confidence to go against the other naysayers. Yes. But these are the people that generally don't go and do stuff, whereas the successful investors are the ones that haven't listened to all those people. Sure, you want to listen enough to make sure you're not doing something completely stupid, but if those people that are telling you haven't got the results, should you be getting any advice from them? Yeah, that's right. I often say to people myself, if someone's advising you on uh, property, and it's generally negatively, 
uh, ask them how many they own, and if they only own their home, run, because that gives you a fair idea of how much real understanding they have about property. That, yeah. that, uh, there's been a, a lot of talk in the in the media in recent times about, the, you know, there's a 60-minute show and a whole bunch of stuff talking about some wild doomsday claims around what's going to happen in property. Uh, you and I both share the view that it's all bollocks, actually, because the fundamental drivers of demand are all still there. And, uh, you know, we've got growing population, we've got an ageing population, and we've got rightly or wrongly, a lot more people divorcing so that the size of the, the family unit is decreasing, which means we need more houses to, to house the same number of people. So from my perspective, all we're seeing at the moment is just a normal market uh, turn. It happens every 7 to 15 years, depending on where you are. What's your view around that, mate, and, the, and the, your confidence around property moving forward? Yeah, look, I think if you buy the right properties, the market's fine. Yeah. Sure, it might be down 5%, give or take, um, but it all depends on the value at the time and if you're actually physically selling. But if you're not forced to sell, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like, my mum's had a property for 45 years. They bought it for 30000 It's probably worth one and a half, two million pounds now. Yeah. She's never sold. She's never refinanced. She have no idea if the market's been up or down. It doesn't matter. And that's why property is stable. Whereas suddenly you get these alerts of oh, the stock market down five or ten percent, and because people can panic and they'll sell straight away. Property it takes a couple of months to get around to it. So look, I think the market's fine. Yeah. If if you're in certain segments of the market, like massive supply, high-rise units, tens of thousands of units, no limit on uh, on height limits, then I'd be scared in that kind of stuff. Yeah. But another thing that I I tell my clients is don't listen to the media. And look, I've had 10 years on Sky, I've been on 9, 10, write for the papers as well, yep. and I have to ignore it. I mean, even ignore my stuff to me, <laughs> to, uh, if you really want to, because otherwise I'm kind of a, a hypocrite. But we all know that papers need to sell papers and TV shows need to kind of sell themselves. Yep. That whole current affair thing of sensationalizing thing or 60 Minutes, they've got to do it, that's their business, they all know it. And so my story doesn't sell because I say, think to find, look 10, 20 or 30 years, yep. I don't get millions of viewers because yep. I'm telling people it's okay and it's fine, don't worry about it. That's not newsworthy. People don't tune in to watch that. Yeah, it's a very good but, point. But it's honest advice. Yeah. I do think the market's okay. Yep. And sure, there's a lot of people in trouble and there's people that will struggle and there's people that will lose money. But either it's a lack of education, part of it could be bad luck. Yeah. Maybe they bought the wrong things or something like that. Yeah. But at least they've given it a go. Like our last point about talking about um, getting the advice from the right people, any rich person you go to is never going to be a nature and say, oh, you made a mistake. As we all know, you learn from mistakes and things like that. Yeah. So I believe in just surrounding yourself with the positive people. Sure, look, keep an eye on the media. And I've, I've read... The, like the telegraph and stuff just to see what material is being pushed out to the public so I am aware of what's going on yeah. but the amount of grief that 60 Minutes got that it was just so one-sided bias yeah. then, um, but look it sells it sells TV well I guess yeah, and you're absolutely spot on I've, I've always said that good investing is as boring as hell so if you're looking for excitement you probably need to go to the races or to the casino yeah. but uh, and look this is why I've got so much time on my hands, because people say, 
oh, look, you run a business, you've got 13 or 14 properties to manage, you've got a family, you've got um, all this other stuff that you're doing TV, you're going traveling. And I say, oh, I've actually got stacks of time because I just outsource and I delegate it. Yep. My properties take me, it wouldn't even take me half an hour of, a, a month to manage them. I yep. just count 13 rents coming in, 13 mortgages going out, maybe one email or two emails, and it's done. Yeah. And ideally, if that rises at 5 or 10% a year, I make 750 to 1.5 million a year. Sure, I might not make it this year or next year or the year after, but over the long term, I firmly believe I do. Yep. I reckon that's a lot of money for half an hour a month. Absolutely. Mate, uh, just to pivot a little bit, uh, and, and we'll sort of come back and dig into some of these areas uh, shortly, but, I mean, you, you enjoy a, a very enviable lifestyle now, and uh, I don't think there'd be any true blue Aussie guy who wouldn't say they would love to live the way you live. But clearly it hasn't always been been that way. You worked very hard uh, early, as you said, to make that happen. Can you take us on that journey? Because uh, I think it's you know, there's a number of people, and let's say they're first-timers who you know are struggling to get a deposit or do something. Very interesting for you to share uh, your early journey right through to you know where you are now with your portfolio and, and talk about the motivations, why you did what you did, what, what were the learnings from it, and how did that help you to uh, get to the, the current situation you're now enjoying? Sure. And look, nothing comes for free. So sure, I might have a good lifestyle, but I've still got my stresses and, and, and everything else as well. And like I try and explain it to my wife is some people might work 40, 60, 80 hours a week, and that's their stress. My stress is I'm holding, say, 10 or $12 million worth of debt. So I'm roughly kind of 60% geared, but I might actually access some more, so I might have 80% of debt. Yep. And and that's the stress I hold, and that's the the money I earn is from having a big portfolio and lots of debt. Yeah. And so I don't put in the hours, but I certainly put in the thinking or the stress of holding that debt. And especially in times like now, when the banks are being an absolute nightmare and the Royal Banking Commission and APRA, they're trying to cut down people like me exactly, like I'm the ideal target. And so yep. even though I'm in a great position, I'm not infallible. They could shut me down tomorrow, and I could be bankrupt. So. That's the stress that I live with. But look, probably my first property was a prime example of, of the way I think. And my skill base is I'm not very emotional. I'm an ex-accountant, and I just think in, in numbers. Yep. And so when I was 22, I earned 10,000 pounds, which wasn't a lot of money. And you could borrow three times your income. So I could buy a place for 30 grand. Yeah. And that would get me a really crappy studio unit in the worst part of town. <laughs> and I'd be mortgaged for, for life. I have no money. And that's why none of my friends did it. Yeah. So what I did is I fell in love with a three-bedroom house in the best part of town. It's probably like a Bondi Beach equivalent with all the young people, the trendy bars and the restaurants. And I yep. said, right, I, that's what I want. So my brain then says, right, okay, let's look at the math. How can I make this work? And the short of it was, was if I could rent two rooms out, the rent in the UK back in the 90s was about 12%. So I could actually live for free off the two rents uh, and live in the third room. Yep, perfect. So I basically went and pitched my dad and said, look, Dad, I'm not after a handout, but this is the way the numbers work. I can afford a three-bedroom house, but I can't afford a one-bedroom unit. Now, he knew that um, I was going to rent it out, but he was still willing that he would bail me out if it all went wrong. Yep. But he could see that the numbers worked. And so he gave me a parental guarantee, which a lot of kids are getting these days. Yep. And I ended up buying a hundred grand, a uh, hundred thousand pound place for 80 grand because I was a cash buyer. Yep. So I basically made two years salary overnight and I lived for free. Nice. 
and and that was my learning and there was no books tv programs seminars none of that back in the 90s but it was just logical it yep. made a lot of sense yeah but my mortgage was more than my wages even before tax right. so i've been in debt for the whole of my life and whilst a lot of people so, so the naysayers would say, oh, you have rich parents, it's all right for you. And sure, that's, that's one argument. But a lot of parents will help their kids. But most people wouldn't have the balls to take on a mortgage seven or eight times their income. Yeah. And that's effectively what I've been paid for or paid well for because I've taken that punt. And t so a lot of people think that I'm really risky. Whereas to me, that made logical sense that the bigger mortgage was actually the cheaper mortgage. Yeah. And that's the way my brain thinks effectively. Yeah, and I've just then supersized that now to then have a fifteen or twenty million dollar portfolio, but I've got to deal with the debt side as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting exercise how how people treat debt, and uh, you know, sharing the experience. I I had a mother who you know, if she owed someone five cents, she wouldn't sleep at night. Whereas my old man's view was, well, it's the bank's money, let them worry about it. And uh, I think once you get comfortable with that and you can see that you're borrowing money for an asset that's actually going to outpace the debt and significantly increase in value that can then both fund lifestyle and secure your future, once once you're comfortable with that, then what's holding you back? And you'll clear evidence of taking that to its extreme and enjoying the benefits along the road, mate. So, mate, so property number one, yep, got mum and dad to sort of get in behind it. And, and for those mums and dads who, who don't want to go guarantee, there's always the alternative where you, what I say is you can borrow them the, the driveway. You, you can take out some money against the home and, and gift them the funds which they can pay it, pay back at their leisure. And then you're not necessarily linked to uh, the risk of what happens with uh, the son or daughter, but you still get them started on the process. Mate, talk us about then from there. So number one, you started, the penny dropped. Uh, how did the journey go yep. from that point, mate? And so then I got on really well with a real estate agent, and I probably saw a 100 properties uh, when I did that. So that's why I bought so well. Yeah. Because I was seeing stuff next to car parks, and I thought, car park, well, they're not going to have parties at the weekend, so it's going to be quiet, but maybe busier during the day. Yeah. But I, I was just teaching myself and I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing yep. so anyway I became really good mates with the um, the real estate agent and we used to hang out probably uh, every few weeks she then came to me about a year later and saying you know that property I sold you well we've just got a developer that's done up these apartments and we reckon he's underpriced them but he's firm belief then that's all all he wants for them but again these are on the market for 80,000 but we think they're worth about 100 nice. so I went around to see it and I said yeah look I'm definitely going to take one, but you need to give me a few days. Yep. So I went back to my dad and I said, but Dad, you know how much money I've made on this um, other property? I've made, by then it's probably worth 110, 120. Yep. Why don't we do a father and son thing? Is your time poor? So why don't I go and do all the work? I can do all the finding, manage all the tenants, all that kind of grief. Then obviously you're more financially stable than me. So you then put the, the kind of the bank side in. And then we'll invest and we'll do it 50-50 together. And he said, oh, look, great idea. He, he wasn't really into the money, but he was happy to um, to do something as like a father and something. Love it. And he said, well, why don't you try and find a property? And I said, well, I've actually already found one. We need to sign for it straight away. <laughs> so, so, again, on the positive side is for the people that haven't got, I guess, the money themselves, what a joint venture is, and I didn't realize that was called a joint venture until about 10 years later on, yep. is you need to find out what 
assets you've got or what can you bring to a deal and then you need to find someone that's got the opposite that the two of you couldn't do a deal separately but together you can do it so the two plus two equals five type thing yeah and again the naysayers would say oh you got a rich parent and that was all fine but further down like property five or six i did a deal similar lines with a guy in the uk that i didn't even know as a friend of a friend yeah and i worked out a similar deal where i could double his capital growth double his rent I would do all the work and I would only get paid if I, if effectively the property grew in value. So I basically took all the risk away from him and I'd only get paid if he'd made money. Yep. And these are the things is, and all I did was basically I was a local and I could leverage whereas he was putting in cash. And so if there's a will, there's a way. Even yes. if you've got no job, no money, no nothing, if you've got a will to succeed, there is always a way. Yep. And there's plenty of people that have proven that over the years. And there's, I mean, the excuse these days is people say it's so hard. At least now there's so much information. Yeah. 25 years ago, you had to, you had to learn this all from uh, experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost too much information now that you can bury yourself and procrastinate forever and, and never actually exactly. do anything. So, uh, so but, yeah, go on, mate. So look, so the second one, again, we made kind of 20 grand um, overnight. We still got that property now. It's worth maybe five or six hundred thousand pounds. Awesome. And then I moved to Australia and just basically kept repeating the same thing. I'd, I'd then use the equity from those first two properties to then buy my next. And then I just started accumulating. So I got to the age of 31. I was working at Deloitte, the accounting firm, and earning about 80 grand a year or 60 after tax. Yep. But in early 2000s, I had six properties growing at 600 grand a year. And um, I couldn't even spend that kind of cash. <laughs> and nice. that's when I struggled to justify my job because I thought... I'm earning 600 grand a year from property. Sure, it's not going to go on forever, but this is what it's growing at the moment. Versus working a 40-hour week, earning 60 grand, and and that's when I walked away from work. And um, yeah, haven't done a proper job since. (laughs) Awesome, mate. Now, uh, just talking talking it through. So you you've turned your own passion uh, for helping other uh, in building your own portfolio, and and from what I'm hearing, it's pretty much a, a buy, maybe a bit of a Renault tart up, and then a, then a hold exercise, and then taking the the equity that either the markets help you grow or that you've manufactured through those renovations, and then uh, using that to to fund uh, further properties. Uh, is that the the strategy that you're still adopting, mate? Is that pretty much the the main yep. play? Yeah. So it's, so even when I was 22, I was always into buying quality property because I thought. If you rent it to someone that's got a good paying job, then they're always going to pay the rent and they don't want their employer to find out that they've trashed the property or done something bad. (laughs) And I think over the last 25 years, that's that's held pretty strong. But um, I don't think I've ever had any bad debts and I've never had anyone trash a property or anything. So, but the downside is, is like the cost of getting in is a lot, lot higher compared to, um, to average Australia. Um, but look, that, that's worked well. If we can do some renos, it's not the be-all and end-all, um, but it certainly um, certainly works to um, to tie it up and show it in, in the best possible light. Yeah. But I just think it's it's um, holding on because emotionally, when I left the UK and left my house, I didn't want to have renters in there because I suddenly thought they might trash it. But then I thought, look, I'm coming all the way to Australia. If things don't work out, when I move back to my house, I can go and gut the whole thing anyway and have a brand new house. And that's the thing is, even my cheapest property in Australia was 360. It's now worth probably one, two, one, three. Nice. If I ever wanted to move in there 
80,000 or 100,000 would get you a pristine renovation, replacing absolutely everything in the unit. Yeah. So if it's already gone up probably eight to 900 grand, who cares if I had to spend 100 grand to completely redo the whole thing? Yeah, exactly. So I think the difference is, is when you have one property, then you're really emotionally involved. It's all yours. You don't want anyone hurting it. Once you've got multiple properties, I haven't seen a lot of my properties for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And I don't care. As long as the bank keeps revaluing them and I can pull the equity, yeah. I don't care what it looks like. Yeah, it's a good call. And obviously, you've surrounded yourself with a, a good team of professionals who are now doing a lot of the nitty-gritty so that you, you only need to spend half an hour a, a week. Who, who are the key people that are part of your team, mate? Look, I've, I've got a team of everyone. I, I literally am <laughs> that lazy that I, I outsource absolutely everything in my life. Yeah. Because I think it's easier for me to buy another property and for that to grow at 10% and I make 50 or 100 grand than it is me doing all the other jobs. So I'm very, very big picture. Yeah. And if anything, I, I reinvest too much. Like I, I'm always constantly uh, reinvesting. But look, when I first started off and I had that um, second property, we literally had no cash. Yeah. And so I remember the real estate agent saying, oh, we need to put fire alarms or smoke alarms in there to make sure it's legal. And I said, yes. And then on my next bill, there was a £25 charge for um, a fire or a smoke alarm. And I said, no, when I said yes, it was mean I'll go and do it because they only cost $2 down at the shop. I can just put one screw into the um, the ceiling and it's all done. Yep. Because literally £25 or $25 was a fortune to me in those days and I had no money. <laughs> Whereas now I say, look, if it's under $1,000, just go ahead with it. If it's over 1000 then sure, drop me an email, but look, go ahead anyway because what can I do? Yeah. I really, I'm not going to help the process. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Now, mate, uh, sort of continuing the journey, you you sort of uh, jump ship from Deloitte's, uh, and at, at that point, uh, you had a half a dozen odd properties and three and a half mil worth in in assets. And tell us about the story there, because a lot of people will be saying, "Well, why aren't you kicking back on the beach doing nothing? Why are you doing what you're doing?" Can you sort of talk us through the, the growth of your empire and and why you do it and what the benefits are to you? Yeah, and others? sure. So, look, when I gave up at 31, I literally had nothing to do, and because I'd earned that kind of 600 grand for a couple of years, and that was in the good old days of no doc loans and low doc loans, so I could just tick a box to say I could afford it, and I could get. 480 grand in cash out of it yeah. and I couldn't spend that money because I, I had I think a Ferrari or something but it wasn't uh, it wasn't mega money yeah um, and so I then actually started doing extras work so I had nothing to do during the day and a mate said I'll oh, come do some extras and I said look I don't want to act I don't want to be on TV but I just love to see how they make a movie or how they make efforts and things like that okay and as an extra I think we earned 22 bucks an hour which basically paid <laughs> for the petrol in the Ferrari to get me there um, I think I was the only one on set with the Ferrari but um, and they realized I was the extra not the director um, but you spend 90% of your time just chatting and I met a photographer who was having a few problems with commercial premises, and so I gave him a hand with that. Yep. And then a few months later, he said, oh, I've got a lead. My agency's trying to find someone who's in real estate yep. to do a show on Channel 9, and it's created by all the real estate chains, so McGrath don't want hookers doing it, and they don't want Rain and Horn. And so I was, because I didn't represent anyone, I didn't sell anything, I didn't sell mortgages, I was seen as the independent person. Perfect. And this was a show called My Home, uh, I think it's in 2008 or something like that. Yep. And suddenly I got on TV because I didn't represent anyone and because I was just telling my story, everyone trusted what I said. Yeah, of course. And so 
from the TV thing, then people said, oh, you're living the life, you're not really working, how do you do it? And so again, I tell them my story. And so I just built up this massive trust because I didn't have a job. Yeah. And then after that, then we, we led it into some proper mentoring and coaching because it's free advice people never act on, whereas if they actually pay for it, then they would. Um, yeah. And then a few years after that, some of my CEO clients said, look, I don't want to deal with the real estate agents. I don't want to be out on the Saturday. If a property's good enough for you, can you just buy me one as well? Perfect. And what I actually found was they would rather pay 10 or 20 grand as a buyer's agent fee to get me to buy for them than they would pay one, two or three grand for me to teach them. Yes. Because again, these were business owners, like we were saying before, is you've got to understand the value of your time. Yeah. They weren't experts. They couldn't spend 10 years building a relationship, even if they did have the knowledge. Yeah. And so they just said, well, if you're saving me maybe 50 grand on the property, why wouldn't I pay you 20 grand? Yeah, exactly. And so we then started giving most of our information away for free and, and the Effortless Empire book, which uh, you mentioned before is the main book that we give out that gives people all the ideas. And we said, look, here's all the information. If you want to go off and do it yourself, good on you. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Take yeah. the book and, and you don't even pay for the book. Yeah. But we then after the people that then just say, love the book, don't want to get involved, don't want to do with real estate agents, I'd rather pay you and then you get me a good deal and your fee is almost paid for itself two or three times over anyway. Yeah. And some people get that logic and some people don't. And I just thought, I don't want to build the biggest business in the world because I don't want to work too hard. I just don't want to deal with positive people that get the concept. And if you don't, that's fine. Yeah. Go and do whatever you think is right for you. Yeah, and there's the second advantage in, in doing that, and it, it's similar to myself too, Chris. You know, a lot of people say, well, why, why are you still doing this, Bushy? And I say, well, it's for two reasons. One, I, I love teaching people. You get a lot of satisfaction out of it. But secondly, it actually gives me an income that enables me to keep going back to the bank and adding the portfolio because if I've, I've pulled the pin, as you, you know better than I, the bank say, well, hold on, how where's the income that's going to fund this so that you can eventually get yourself an income at the other end? So it's uh, while, while the business doesn't make a lot of uh, money for us, it certainly then fuels the ongoing growth of portfolio. Is that the similar thinking on your side? Oh, look, it's, it's almost word to word perfect. Yeah, because at the moment, we haven't got low-doc loans, and so the banks do want to see an income. And so really, all of my wealth comes from, um, from my property portfolio, and then the business then just pays for the day-to-day -day expenses and things like that. So yeah. sometimes when the clients see me pull up in a Lamborghini, they think, oh, your fees must be expensive. And I say, look, it's a drop in the ocean. First of all, the Lamborghini appreciates in value rather than depreciates. Yeah. But that comes from my property portfolio. Yeah. And the business is a completely separate thing. And every time we buy, we go and buy based on the bank valuation, which, as you know, in the, in the mortgage business is very conservative. Yeah. So if I say, if I can buy you a property in a blue chip suburb with parking 500 meters from the beach on a bank valuation, you know that's a great deal because normally at auction it might go 5 or 10% more. Yeah. So if I'm only charging you 2% and I'm saving you 5 or 10, you're making many times over. And if you don't think it's worth it, walk away and, and don't pay a cent. So um, yeah. again, it's just having the people with the right attitude. And, and, and that's the thing is I love what I do. I don't do anything I don't want to do. And so is it really work or is it pleasure? Well, that's, that's the main thing. So yeah. I, I could never understand why someone would want to be a teacher at school. Because I thought everyone's going to whinge and moan, what's the pleasure? But <laughs> effectively, I'm a teacher now because I've, I've been spending so long educating people. Yeah. And there's nothing better. I had a guy email the other day saying, I've just gone from three properties to seven. Can I chat you lunch or dinner? 
I didn't use your services, but I used all your knowledge and I went off and did it. And I'm happy to shout at you and uh, I'd love to tell you my story. Awesome. There's nothing better in the world than having that. Yeah. And I'm not doing it for a free lunch or a free free dinner. If someone just comes up on the street and says, hey, use your stuff, had some fun, and I've now got financial freedom, there's nothing better in the world than hearing those stories. Yeah, 100% agree, mate. Mate, uh, let's, let's come back to the, the lifestyle aspect because, uh, the, you know, a lot of time poor professionals, uh, feel trapped on the treadmill and they've, they've got a, some of them have got an idea of what the ideal lifestyle would look like, but they just struggle to have the means to actually make it happen. And they've still got this concept that they've just got to keep grinding their nose to the, the, uh, the desk. Uh, slaving away for 60, 70, 80 hours a week and then perhaps if they survive the journey, there'll be enough there at the end to, to do it. Uh, what I love about uh, your journey is is this ability to access things uh, and do it differently so that it's not tying a, a dirty, great financial noose around your neck. So uh, talk to me, you talked about the, the Lambo. Tell us about how you've managed to actually access a vehicle like that uh, without it um, becoming a, a huge financial noose? Yeah, well, I guess probably when um, I was at Deloitte, so I bought, one of the main reasons I left Deloitte, I bought a quarter of a million dollar uh, Ferrari that I think the list price was something like four or five hundred grand and I tried to salary sacrifice it. Yep. And they got me to ring up one of the partners and um, I said, look, I'm trying to salary sacrifice a car. How does it work? And they was actually saying, well, it's not on the price you pay. It's actually on the retail value of the car. So I said, oh, it's not going to work for me because the car's 500. And he said, 500 what? And I said, $1,000. And you could almost hear him falling off his chair <laughs> because they worked out the SBT on the 500 grand was then going to be so much money that effectively it was more than my wages. And he didn't know my name because I was so junior, and he thought, none of the partners drive Ferraris. How's the office junior then trying to sell his sacrifice a Ferrari? And he said, what do you use it for? And I said, oh, just for hanging out and like driving, racing and stuff like that, just for a bit of fun. Yep. So um, they, knew, they knew I was a bit different at um, Deloitte. And I think even the, the managing partner had a client come up to him saying, uh, I, I hear um, Deloitte junior staff drive around in convertible Ferraris. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the main thing is for most people is they're just so busy at work. They just keep following the thing, trying to get up the career ladder, yeah. um, trying to trying to get partnership. Yeah. The thing that opened my eyes at Deloitte's was I'd moved from accounting into a, like a recruiting area. Yep. And so I had to interview 10 CFOs or finance directors each week. Yep. So over two years, I interviewed a 1,000 of them. And I couldn't tell what they did technically, so I assumed that they could all do their job. So I talked about this kind of stuff with them. Yep. And quite often they had the big family home, they had the wife or the partner that was out spending, they had a couple of brand new cars, go overseas on business, and none of them had any money. Yep. And that's when I realized that I thought having an accounting career was a job for life, and the boss at the top had all of the, the wealth, yep. but quite often they don't. Yeah. And that was my eye-opener. And that's when I realized the money I'm making from property far exceeds having a half a million, a million-dollar income because you lose half in tax, then you lose the other half going to pay off your mortgage, which is a massive drain, yeah. and you have all this other stuff. And then I realized it's a really aged society. So once you hit your 40s and, and the start of your 50s, you're going to lose a big-paying job at 250 or 500, and they'll be hiring a 30-year-old under you that's half the cost. Yeah. So suddenly it, it isn't a job for life. No. And I was, 
in a way, I was just lucky to have that realization. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other books talk about they go and interview the BRW Rich List and they get all these learnings. And that's what it is, is you just need to learn from the people that, that are there and avoid the stuff that you really don't want. Yeah. Just because everyone else is going for it doesn't make it right. Yeah, and I, I think the, and you touched on an, a, another good point there that, that comes back to that rent vesting question because, uh, you know, most Aussies try and buy the Taj Mahal first and they put this massive financial noose around their neck and then they, they simply don't have the, the funds, the time and the energy to be doing anything in the investing space even if they wanted to. Whereas, uh, you know, what I love about uh, what you've done and I, I, my wife and I have done a, a lot of, uh, rent vesting in the past, where we recognise that uh, if we're going to have any debt, we might as well have a tax deductible and uh, live in a place that quite often we, we'd be able to rent a, a property and a good quality property far less than what we'd be paying on a mortgage. So we had the lifestyle side of things, but the money that we were actually borrowing was going into things that were improving in value. And if we'd structure them the right way, were pretty affordable because it wasn't costing as much. Is that, is that pretty much the approach that you adopted? Was it a, yeah. a, around that and, time? And look, the, yeah, and look, the cars is a bit different. So, say the Lambo that I've got at the moment was 250 Yeah. And so, actually, I'll bring you back to the, the Ferrari when I was at Deloitte. So, most people would say, right, if you're going to pay for a depreciating asset, you should pay cash for it. Yeah. But you go and pay 250 for a car, and that really is dead money. Yeah. So what I did is I leased it 100%, which people thought was absolutely madness. Right. But I put that 250 cash effectively into a 20% deposit on a million-dollar property. Yeah. If that, that, that then rises at 50 or 100 grand a, or 5 or 10%, it makes 50 to 100 grand a year. Yeah. You're not paying tax on it because you're not selling it, yeah. and you access the cash from refinancing, whereas the car on a lease was probably costing me, look, it might have cost maybe 50 grand a year or something like that, four or five grand a month. Yep. But effectively, a lot of the depreciation had already come out of that car. Yep. So you go and buy a 500 grand car for 250, it's already fully depreciated almost. Yep. But my Lambo at the moment, I paid 250 and the insurance valuation is 350. Yeah. Because after a while, they bottom out and then the market goes up. Now the market might be down now, so I might only get two or 250. But again, it's hardly depreciated in six years. Whereas you buy a two hundred and fifty grand Beamer yeah. or Mercedes, and that'll be worth fifty grand after six years. Yeah, exactly right. And so, have you so, used equity in the properties to to fund that so that again you're reducing the the cash flow side of yeah. the equation to access it? Is that how you've done it? it? Because because in those days, my my limiting factor on building my portfolio was not serviceability; it was having the deposit. So I didn't want to put any deposit down. Right. Whereas now the market's changed and now I've got plenty of deposits and the serviceability is the issue. So then effectively I'd pay off the cars yeah. because the four or five grand a month repayment of paying back a 250 grand car, the same repayment could pay back a million dollar mortgage. Yes. Yeah. So depending on where you are in the cycle and what the banks are after, yeah. one minute I'd, I'd 100% uh, finance the car and other times I'd pay cash for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where people need to, to realize that the strategies, they're constantly evolving. And so you can't kind of get one recipe from a book and, and that's it for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. You need to adapt with, um, with the flow of things. And ideally with the strategy I've got, it is adaptable to do those things without having to suddenly sell properties. 
Yeah, yeah, love it, love it. And you know, sort of adapting the same approach to you, you mentioned that uh, you fly at the the pointy end of the plane uh, when you do a fair bit of travel, and uh, you manage to do that for free. Share with us how uh, you managed to do that as well, mate, if you don't mind. Yeah, so look, I, I met a guy called um, Steve Huey. Uh, he's got a business called I Fly Flat, and I met him probably, I don't know, uh, five or six years ago. Yep. And what it was was I was earning all these frequent flyer points just on, or not frequent flyer, like um, the points on your credit card. Yep. And I was converting 100,000 points to $1,000 of Myers or DJ's voucher and giving them to my wife. So I got zero pleasure from it. And then I was suddenly <laughs> seeing some of these other friends that were suddenly flying business. And there's no way, like a business class flight to Asia is maybe four to six grand. Yep. And even if I've got the money, there's no way I was going to spend that. I'd rather go economy for a grand and have three or four grand spending money the other the other side. Yep. Um, but then this guy says, and I've never done the frequent flyer things because I could never work out the airline systems. It's so complicated. Yeah, of course. And so this guy said, I can do it all for you because just as you're passionate for property, I'm passionate for a frequent flyer. I know all the hacks and the rest of it. So effectively, I could pay him. He would then work out the hacks and, and tell me what credit cards got me the most points and how to convert it. So he does everything for me. So I fly 10 or 15 times a year. And because I run my whole business through American Express and my cars and my rent and all the rest of it, I generate all these points. Some of them I might have to pay a premium for. Yep. But I'm happy to do that. But then suddenly I can fly 10 or 15 times a year, business or first class, or even in those amazing suites and stuff. And I'd never pay cash for it, but I'm happy doing it uh, on the points. Yeah, love it, love it. Uh, that's and, and this is the the beauty of just thinking outside of the square and and not following the herd and thinking, okay, well, this is what I do. How how am I going to do it, man? It seems to be a an uncanny ability that y- you're able to uh, cut to the chase, question the norm, and then break the complex down into what what's critical and and almost make it sound simple, mate. You have this happy knack of making what. Other people will trip themselves over. You boil it down into easy numbers that go, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. So why aren't you doing it? Is that something you've and, just and been this, ingrained? This, this, is the classic, this is the classic joke because most decisions are all emotional and, and quite often when I'm on stage, I say, why is it that quite a lot of the successful property investors or speakers are all uh, ex-accountants? And I said, well, how much emotion has an accountant got? And we all know they've got absolutely zero. That's why the decision process for me is so easy yeah. Whereas other people say, oh, no, but you're still spending money, you're still doing this. To me, it's an equation, it's mathematics, and it gives me the answer straight away, and I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So you've yeah. got to concentrate on your skills. You can't be the best mortgage broker, accountant, buyer, renovator, all these different things. It's like in a business, the CEO is the one that makes, or the owner is the one that makes the money. Yeah. But he's got an expert in accounting, marketing, sales, production, whatever the business is, but it's the decision maker that makes the money. Yes. Yeah, that's a very good call. Now, mate, from the outside looking in and for those that that, uh, either haven't known you or have just seen the good parts, uh, it's easy for them to think, ah, well, he's just had a dream ride. Uh, He's been, you know, kissed on the backside. He's had a, uh, just a, a gifted Gifted run, but I, I know that's not the case. Are you happy to share with us you know, some of the most challenging times you've had on that journey? Because you know you've mentioned that you've got at times you've had considerable amount of debt, and the market can be moving, and it's uh, that can be a, a pretty hair rising ride for most people. Well, 
Can you talk yeah. us about some of the most challenging times you've had on the journey so far? And, and look, I've, I've been, or I think I've been pretty open with it um, so far. It's probably only my wife that really knows that the real um, stress is. I've got a bald head, so uh, there's obviously a lot of stress, but uh, I've got a full head of hair these days. But look, it has been tough, and I'm not there yet, and I've still got a way to go to make sure it's um, completely sound. But effectively holding debt, and in the GFD, I was paying rates of like 10.5%. Yeah. Um, the worst point in my life, I think, um, having a heart attack and being paid out on insurance, assuming I survived, was probably the only way of getting through it. <laughs> um, so my God. it is there. Yeah. But, look, at least if everything goes wrong, I've made it a calculated decision. Yeah. I've taken on a bet and I've lived with that bet, so I don't regret anything. And even if I lost everything, which touch wood doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, I was prepared that I, I knew the risk and, and we've had the fun times with it as well. Yeah. But look, it, it, it's not easy and that's why not everyone does it. Yeah. Um, it's like dieting. You want to lose weight, then you've got to forgo nights out. You've got to go down the gym. You've got to do the boring stuff. Yeah. Um, I was willing to do that for finance. I haven't done that with my health. So, uh, I'm not the fittest guy around town, <laughs> but, but it is sacrifice. You, You've got to pay the money or you've got to go through the pain. Yeah. And I just wanted more than most. So I'm reasonably material. I'm not hung up on, on these things. Yeah. But I am reasonably material and I, I like the fun things and the better things in life. Yeah. And I was willing to sacrifice more than most. I was willing to take more risks than most. And sure, I've got an accounting background which has helped. Yeah. But look, there's plenty of people that have got 10 times what I've got with half the intelligence and half the backing and the rest of it. Um, so, again, it comes back to if there's a will, there's a way. I had a massive motivation. Like my sister in the UK is, is not financial. She's a teacher. She helps um, a lot of the boat people coming into the UK to educate them and and do things for the church. Uh, my mum was basically her dad was a vicar. My brother's a bit in between. He's a, a red and black gambler. So <laughs> three kids, we've all done completely different things. Yeah. Um, but it's because everyone's got different motivations and um, Simon Sinek talks about the why. You just need to work out what your why is, yeah. what you really want to achieve, what are you willing to do to achieve that, yeah. and um, do whatever it takes. Yeah. No, it's, uh, legally, of course. Of course. Yeah, no, that's very good advice there, mate. Mate, uh, you mentioned your good wife in, uh, in the chats there and that she really gets to see you lumps and all. Uh, and it, it, there's so much focus on the individual all-stars in, in our Western society, but uh, for all the successful people I've come across, uh, just about every one of them without exception has a partner that's pretty important in that process. How's, how important has Tanya been in your success to date so far? Oh, look, it, she's very important because I'm pretty out there on a lot of my thinking. And a lot of her friends say, like, how do you let your husband go out drinking all the time and go travelling and driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis and out on the boats and partying and stuff? <laughs> but she actually explains, like, she's got a sales and marketing background. She said, well, he is actually working. So my friends reckon I don't work at all. Um, she reckons I'm kind of working 24-7. And who knows what the tax man thinks. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a bit of a mixture. But look, yeah. the lucky thing for me was Tanya's dad was... Um, he ran a, a very large international business, so yeah. she came from a business background. 
Um, she was successful herself, had a, a great career. She was a property investor. She already had a couple of properties. Yep. So, and also she wasn't, um, not trying to make sure I'm politically correct as well. She, she was a very unemotional female in a way. So she had okay. a business head on her. Yep. So just like I, I make these business decisions, she's very like that rather than just flying off the handle as, as an emotional thing. Yep. And I'm not try, trying to say like um, certain people do certain things. Yep. But yeah, it's, it's a very business uh, decision process for her as well. And so she's not 100% aware I am, but she's definitely 90%. It's, yep. We might have a, a little upset once a year or something, and within a few days it's all cleared yep. because she's a very logical thinker, and that's really, really helped. And, and mathematically, she was... She was um, good at doing that at school as well, which um, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome because I, I, myself and my wife Sonia and I we, we're almost yin and yang. So and and that it's that balance, and we have some pretty robust discussions about things. But what comes out of that is a much better decision as a as a consequence. So you you sort of find the same thing with Tanya. Yeah, she, she's very good. And so look, I, I do manage the kind of the family finances, and again, yeah. she understands ninety percent of it. Yeah. Um, and she wouldn't necessarily do the same thing. So she's definitely more con- conservative th- than me. Yeah. But she knows this is what I do. She's happy taking the punt. But at the same time, both of us aren't that materialistic. So if we had to live in a two-bedroom unit or a one-bedroom flat or something like that, yeah, I think we could do it. Like I've just been in the outback for a week, um, kind of racing this um, this Cadillac and sleeping in tents and being in the dirt. <laughs> I'm happy doing that. I don't need five star hotels. I don't need kind of flash flash whatever. I'm happy. I've always driven second hand cars. So um, I think a lot of these things is once you tick the boxes and you've had them in the past, yeah. then they actually don't mean a lot afterwards. Yes. So we've had houses that have had two or three lounges, a few dining rooms. We eat out all the time. We don't need all that stuff. So yeah. um, people that aspire to have to have the home and pay it off quite often then realise that it, it, it doesn't actually matter. No, and, 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 the, and the, the interesting thing, uh, sort of circling back to that rent vesting exercise that, that I find interesting, because I, I crunch numbers on this uh, all the time, uh, if you were to... Uh, stick money into a you know one or two million dollar house with a dirty great mortgage, and you're borrowing most versus renting and and sticking that money into two or three investment properties over the over the longevity of the journey. You're way better off uh, financially doing the rent vesting thing than you are. Um, uh, yeah, mathematically, the it just makes so much sense. Yeah. But again, everyone's got the dream of buying their own home, paying it off. And, and look, most of our clients will do that. They'll still buy their own family home, that's fine. True. But at least we're there to educate them that if you want to push the boundaries financially, it's not worth doing. But if your dream in life is to have your own home paid off, then, then that's fine. That's, um, True. That's, that's no problem at all. Yeah, it's a good call. Um, mate, you, sort of coming back to the your outlook on life, uh, which which – for me, is uh, the piece that separates you from most others in the game. You seem to have this uh, knack of uh, getting the fastest and easiest way of, of getting somewhere uh, and questioning everything uh, to see where there's a, a better way. Where, where does that come from, mate? Is that something you're born with or is it picked up from the family? Yeah. So that's the laziness. Laziness. My school reports. My parents hated it. So, so look, I did fairly well at school. So we had um, O levels at sixteen and A levels at eighteen in the UK. Yeah. And I think I did nine O levels, or I passed nine out of eleven. And I did 
uh, three A-levels. Yeah. And so for the average of, of the UK, that would be a massive high performer. But effectively, I just got like C passes. I literally got 51% if the pass mark was 50. Yeah. Even if I could have got 99, I wouldn't have done it. I did the minimum amount just to get there. That's the way I've always been. So again, getting into property at an early age is I wanted those material things. Yeah. I thought working hard, paying it off and saving, and I've never been a saver, isn't the way to go for me. There's got to be a better way. Yeah. And then that's how I basically built my own strategy. It, yeah. And we talked a bit, a bit about it before is it literally, I, I did build it and everything effectively up until about 30, 31 was self-taught. Yeah. I then invested in myself and I started doing all these property courses and reading books and okay. learning from other coaches and mentors. Yeah. And in a way, it was lucky because I buy exactly the things now that I bought at 22 and I just happened to come across the right kind of strategy for me. Yeah. Um, so even though I've done like three or 400 interviews on Sky, it's all just built on exactly what I was doing before. Right. Um, and so, so there is an element of luck there. But again, as I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on education and mentoring and, and those kind of things, yeah. just like I'm suggesting other people do, yeah. because if someone's been down the path before, you don't have to be a genius. They're going to help you do things a lot quicker and safer. Yeah, it's a good call. You, you mentioned uh, the importance of mentors uh, in in that journey once you got stuck into it. Uh, who have been the standouts in that regard and and what sort of people would you suggest the listeners start to delve into in, in getting some mentoring support themselves? Look, it's it's a whole bunch of different people. So I don't have kind of heroes in my life if I think this person's God and things like that. Yeah. And I think with a lot of mentors then – Within kind of six or 12 months, you're going to get 80% of their material anyway yeah. and their thinking. And so you need to chop and change. So I, yes. or I haven't had mentors for, for, for decades. Yeah. But also I think you've got to pay for it. So I've, I've had kind of free mentors and cheap mentors. And it's the ones that charge you a fortune that I think that's where you get the real value. So a lot of these people, I think I was paying a thousand an hour or $1,500 an hour. I think the most I've paid was three and a half grand an hour. Yeah. And people would say, like, how can you know that you're going to get value for money? And it's, well, when you spend that kind of money, you make sure you do it. Yes. But I was even running late for some of these meetings when I'm paying 1500 bucks an hour. And so I suddenly thought, I've got to change my mentality. Even if I park my car in the middle of a roundabout and I get towed and it costs me three or 400 bucks, it's still worth it to turn up on time for the meeting because every, that's probably three minutes of the, um, of the mentoring thing anyway. So again, I just, kind of keep keep learning this stuff yeah. but look a lot of people come to me and say what property courses should you do i reckon go and do them all yes and try and do one a year yep. and do some cheap ones do some expensive ones if someone has just come out of jail because they've been a naughty boy go to their course learn what they did learn how they rip people off all the bad stuff yeah and it's not to condone what they've done but it's like if they've ripped people off or they've done the wrong thing you need to learn from them how they how they manipulate things because you need to be warned off so that you don't get ripped off. Yes, yeah, spot on. And and a lot of these courses, like typically only one or two two percent of people take take action. Yeah. And I've been in seminars where they give you thirty steps and if you follow those thirty steps, you'd be fine. Or ninety nine percent you'd be fine. Yeah. But people don't do it. They go and do step one, they go and do step thirty they get into trouble and then they can blame the seminar presenter. Yes. And it's not to say that people shouldn't be protected because I, I think they should be, 
but they've got to take personal responsibility as well, I think. Absolutely right. And I think it's probably the reason why over 50% of first-time investors sell probably within the first five years because they only half-bake it. They don't put the whole jigsaw together, and then when it all turns to poo because it's costing them too much, they, they're pointing the finger at everyone else rather than having a look in the mirror. So, yeah, um, and I, I think the mortgage industry and the, the Royal Banking Commission, they've got lots of stories come out now as well. But I, from my experience of seeing people, I know a lot of people are happy signing bank forms, and they're all cool when uh, they're getting the money. Yeah. But when it all goes wrong, then it's, oh, I signed a blank form and, and whatever else. And, and it's not to say that not everyone's been uh, kind of doing the right thing. There's, there's always the cases where people have been wronged. Sure. But I think there's a lot of people that will play it one way and then they won't take it. They won't take the consequences mm. or, or the responsibility. Yeah, it's selective memory when it counts. Yeah, absolutely right there, mate. Talking about that, because it's fair to say that I, I've, in the years that I've been in, in the property and finance sector, and it's been you know a good couple of decades now. Uh, we're certainly coming into some interesting times, and you, you've mentioned the the Royal Commission and the the tightening that's having on on credit. But I, I guess one of the and that doesn't overly concern me. But one of the things that I I am uh, feeling very uncomfortable about, mate, is the uh, Federal Labor Party is talking about uh, making some pretty major changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax if they uh, get in the next election. Uh, and I've heard reports of, you know, overnight changes of anywhere between 9 to 12% in property values and a whole heap of roll-on effects. Uh, you, you're right across all of these issues given your high profile uh, with your TV show. What's, what's your read of it and what's your thoughts around uh, what might happen if that's the case? Yeah, like the funny thing is, is I'm not on top of it. <laughs> and I don't listen to the media. Politicians, I find even even harder to understand because no matter what party they are, it's hard to get a straight answer. And, and so again, this this is the learning: is I've got to where I am, not listening to all that stuff. Yeah. And sure, I keep an ear out to see what's going on. Yeah. But they've been talking about negative gearing since I first came to Australia. Yeah. And the way I try and explain it to people is. When they brought in GST, and that's the day I got out of accounting, so I think it was 30th of June 2000, yep. uh, 2002. Yeah. And, oh no, sorry, 2000. And that, I think I left uh, accounting that, that day because it was coming in on the 1st of July. Yeah. When they were going to add 10% to absolutely every single thing that we purchase, there's a riot. Everyone thinks the world's going to come to an end. How can we afford 10% extra? Yeah. But we forget about it now. Yep. Same thing in the UK. Now I think the UK might be 17.5% or even 22.5% GST or VAT. Yep. And the government, well, they'll, they'll chuck it in, everyone gets scared, then the next event comes along and, and the focus gets taken off on it, and then they sneak all the, the tax up. Yep. If they ever did take negative gearing, sure, there might be a big hiccup. I don't know if there'll be anything major. But even if it is, the bottom line is, is in good areas, there's no more property yeah. because there's high restrictions. Yeah. There's still a hell of a lot of wealthy people that can afford to pay for that. Yeah. And one of the best learnings I had from a guy called from John Edwards at Residex who's predicted capital growth for the whole of his life, yeah. he said all this stuff that goes on in the economy in the good areas doesn't matter. Supply and demand is the most basic thing. Is if, if there's a limited supply of something and people want it, the price will go up. And so that's what I think is the score with negative gearing. Sure, I could be wrong. I'm not an economist, 
but I'm not going to spend the next 20 years worrying about it. Yes. Because if I had, I'd have been worried for the last 20 years. Yes. And in my book, I talk about, say your property costs you 10 grand a year and you get three or four grand back in, in negative hearing. Yeah. Work on losing 10 grand because if you give up work and you don't pay tax, you don't get any tax back. Yes. So I'm assuming that I never want to work and I'm not paying, not paying tax. So think of that money as a bonus, not the reason. If you're investing in property to get three or four grand back, you're doing the wrong thing and you're going to end up in trouble. True. You should be buying property because you want half a million to double to a million or a million to double to two. Yeah. If you get a bit of tax back, it's a bonus. Yeah. And that's why I don't listen to too much of it. If things change, I'll just deal with it at the time. Yeah. Sure, I build up all my cash buffers and so will interest rates rise? Guaranteed. Will it be today, tomorrow, next year? I don't know. I don't even listen to the RBA on that stuff. Yeah. I just know I can't change that. So let me concentrate on with my life and building my plan B and plan C and plan D. Yeah. If it happens, there might be something positive happens that reverses that. So yes. yeah, I, I just, I concentrate on what I can, what I can, uh, affect effectively. Yeah, I'd love your thinking on that, mate. And it's a, it's a very good point because uh, uh, you'd be doing with uh, this with your clients as well. But m- most of the clients that uh, we're assisting, you know, they've got 15 to 20 year uh, investment horizons. That's how long they're into the property for. So uh, if, if they start listening to the noise and making decisions, you know, at year one, two, three, five, even 10 on that journey, then they're what they're really saying is they didn't believe in their strategy in the first place. Whereas if, you, if you're confident around the strategy and you've done all the right numbers and you've done your due diligence and you've got your buffers, as you say, that you've built in to cover anything untoward from a cost base, whether it be something to do with the property or employment or otherwise, then you're better off just letting it doing its thing and then getting on enjoying life, which is exactly what you're saying. And uh, I think that's a really important message for investors who are taking this long-term capital growth play to just just turn off the noise, throw the paper away, do better things with your time yep. and uh, enjoy what you do have with others. So when I bought my first one in Australia in Coogee just before the Olympics for 360, everyone said the market's going to crash. Like every year there's a different reason not to buy it. The Olympics, yeah. it's negative gearing, it's a new government or whatever. <laughs> that property is now worth, I don't know, one two to one four or something like that. Yeah. Even if the worst thing happens, one four goes down to a million. It goes down effectively thirty percent or so. I lose four hundred grand. I still made six seven hundred grand. Yeah. So who cares? Exactly. So it's it's like dollar cost averaging that they say in shares. If you just keep buying every year or six months or whenever you can afford to buy, as soon as you've got one out the way and it's grown for a year or two, the chances are it's never going to go back to that value that you paid. So you then use that to springboard to the next one, the next one. Yeah. And sure, you might have bought one yesterday and the market drops 10% overnight. You've mm-hmm. lost 10% on that property, but all the other ones you've gained. And so, yeah. in reality, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely right. No, that's, that's, uh, brain insights there, mate. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move into what I call the ambush session, uh, Chris, where I just ask five questions that all the listeners keep asking me. And I, I know they'll love your thoughts around this. Uh, what's your favorite quote and why? Um, so probably the best one I've got was a Confucius one is do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Yeah. And just like you asked before is, yeah, how much do you work or, or why, why there are people say you still work? And I said, well, 
because I love everything I do, I don't think I do work effectively. Yeah, beautiful. Yep, spot on. Mate, uh, now you've, you've got three books that uh, you've published over time. Uh, the first was Go For It. Uh, you've, you've, Go For Your Life. Yeah. Yep, go for your life. You've got the uh, Effortless Empire. And, uh, and the third one was? Yeah, so I've actually done, I think, about three others that are like okay. um, co-authored ones with various different people. Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay, well, uh, the, the Dead Set Reads and the Effortless Empire is uh, an absolute must. But uh, beyond your own books, what's the top book that you would recommend people have a look at and why? Look, the, the life changer for me was Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which he was probably the godfather of wealth creation. Yeah. And when I wrote, when I read that book, it just, everything made sense. And, and I'd actually done a lot of the stuff. So that was about 31 when I kind of got out of work. Yeah. And I'd never heard of, of that book before. I actually tried to read it maybe about 10 years ago and I, I literally couldn't read it. I found it so boring. <laughs> and I think it's because. It's just that stuff was just so ingrained and, and I don't know if it's from the 90s or something like that. Yeah. And look, I'm sure if you've never read it, then it's an absolutely unbelievable book. Yeah. But there's just so much content these days, it's, um, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. But look, that was the book that I think changed so many people's lives. And, and it's very similar for me because Robert Kiyosaki's dad was a teacher, whereas his kind of mate's dad was, was more of a business one. Yeah. Almost the same as me. So my, my dad was an academic. He was, um, a heart physician and Cambridge University and very much get a good education, go, go to university yeah. and, and buy a home and, and pay all that off. Yeah. Whereas I was kind of a black sheep and I went down a different path. But, um, yeah, yeah. very, very good book. Yeah, no, that's a cracker. But uh, the next one revolves around a, a topic that's close to a lot of Aussies' hearts, and I, I constantly hear it around the fact that uh, a lot of Aussies feel like they're paying too much tax. What's the top legal thing that you've done to uh, minimise or pay less tax, Chris? Buy property and yeah. don't sell it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the great thing. It's a lot of people say, oh, what's the capital gains rate? What are they going to do for that? Well, if you never sell, you never pay the tax, so who cares? It's um, sure, if you're a for seller, there's nothing you can do about it. But the main thing is that tax is always secondary. So I actually go to Deloitte Private for my account. Yep. Most people say you're mad. How can you pay their fees? They're for multinational corporations. Yep. Whereas my thought process is, is the billionaires use those guys and the billionaires pay them for their time to do all the research, to do whatever trust structures and things like that that they do. Yep. So if they've already invented it, I just go along and I pay a fee and it's not a fortune and I get all that knowledge from around the billionaires and the people that advise billionaires and I can get it for a fraction of the cost. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, love your thinking. Love your thinking on that. But uh, you've given us some gold on this already through the chat, but uh, if we to summarise it, what's the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've ever received? I think the best thing is just do it. Even if you make mistakes, the mistakes are never as bad as um, as you kind of initially uh, think, and everything comes down to experience. So if you if you lose the lot and it all goes wrong, you've learned a lesson and you can move on from there. It's much better that you've tried than the person that's fat and lazy that sits around and does nothing and whinges all day. So um, I think that's the best thing. Yeah. Um, the worst bit of advice. I'm trying to think. I mean, I probably only lost money once was with, I invested with someone that was supposedly buying property options on commercial properties. Um, in fact, it was just 
um, keeping up his business and and um, it's just working capital. So he wasn't even investing in these things. Right. Uh, you know who you are if you're ever listening to this. Bad on you. But um, probably even with that bad thing was I probably lost 130 grand. I've got about 65 grand back because I hired some good advisors to then uh, secure my position. But in a way, maybe he did me the biggest favor in the world because I lost, say, 65 grand. But if I'd met this guy now and I'd invested at a different level and put millions in, then I could have been uh, having a problem for millions of dollars. Mm. So if you're learning, if you're going to fail and everyone fails, do it early, do it quick, do it at a cheap level of the market because then you learn the lessons that um, you don't make the mistakes on the bigger numbers. Love it. Love it. Yeah, and that's not – again, mate, just your – uh, DNA ability to say, okay, well, what's a positive out of this? Whereas a lot of others would either bury their head in the sand, jump off a cliff, or uh, never go back there. Uh, it's a real testimony to your outlook on life, mate. But uh, and flowing through into that, what, what's a personal habit then that you think contributes most to your investment success? I think um, I think it's just investing in myself. So my biggest fault is I've always over-invested. So just like buying that um, three-bedroom house and borrowing eight times or seven or eight times my income, yeah. I've then gone and done it again and done it again. So I kind of go from feast to famine, but um, I suddenly, so I go and buy that, I'm, I'm deep in debt, I then make a lot of money with the capital growth, I feel rich, and then I go and spend that money, <laughs> and most of it I actually reinvest in other properties and assets. Yeah. But I, I then I overinvest, and so I feel poor again. So then I've got to go and work, <laughs> and so I'm in this kind of rat race in a way. It's all self kind of propelled. <laughs> but I think that's the thing that that I've done is is that's the only thing that gets me off my backside. Is I suddenly feel poor. I'm going to have to get a proper job. So I, I then actually go and do some work. <laughs> I'm trying to break out of that now. And and look, say with my portfolio now is. I could be probably 80% geared and have 30 or 40 million in property, yeah. or I could be 50 or 60% geared and only have, say, 15 or 20. Yeah. What I've learned is having twice as much, once you get to a certain level, doesn't bring you any more happiness. No. So I'd rather have money in the bank and a 50% portfolio because I'm not going to live in a bigger house and have bigger cars or private jets and the rest of it unless I really am stupid. <laughs> and so part of it is you've got to be happy with what you've got and you've got to love life and, and just get on with that as well. Yeah, I, I think you're touching another really good point there because it's it's a question that I ask everyone we help and it's one of the very first questions is how much is enough to fund your ideal lifestyle? Because your idea of an ideal lifestyle is going to be very different to mine and every everyone else. But if you get some real clarity around... How do you want to live? And then you work out that lifestyle costs X. All I need to do is invest in uh, a number of growth assets that are eventually going to give me that income stream and that's job done. Whereas, you know, the, well, I saw my father pretty much kill himself just chasing, chasing money for the sake of chasing money. And, you know, I've got a lot of respect for him, but there was no end to it. And uh, what happens in that process is the thing that you mentioned before, heart attacks, stress, cancer and they, they just don't get to the end of the journey so I, I think clearly you've worked out pretty early Chris you know, what your ideal lifestyle is you're, you're living it to the max and you get to a point of saying well I'm there 
Is, is that pretty much uh, how you see it at the moment? Yeah, look, probably a good key is to have, and this is what I've got in business, is variable costs. Yeah. So for the property market, say for, for buyers agents, a lot of it's changed. We've gone from three or four years of having three or four times as many clients that we can deal with yeah. to suddenly going the other scale that everyone's all sceptical and they can't borrow. Yeah. So the great thing about my business and my life is everything's variable cost. Yeah. So I can literally stop all of my expenses almost overnight, apart from my mortgages, um, because it's it's variable. So my rent, I could downsize straight away. Like I only pay seven, I think what do I pay, seventeen hundred bucks a month for a four million dollar yeah. um, property. Yeah. But effectively, we could move out and we could live in a six or seven hundred dollar a week if we had to. Yep. The cars are all paid for cash. Yeah. So again, they could be sell and there's no negative equity in there. Yeah. Um. Everything else we have is there's there's no fixed overheads on it. Yeah. Um, so I've got no office. I've got no full time staff. They're all um, contractors and self employed. Yeah. So literally, we can turn off probably half a million, a million dollars worth of costs almost overnight. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah, because that's, because yeah. I don't have all these big liabilities on personal assets and and have to have a big flash office. Like I'm sitting now, I'm looking at the Harbour Bridge, yeah. but I'm in a rental property. Yeah. I don't want to commute to work, so I work from home. I can work from anywhere in the world. Yeah. And I've got a better view here than I would in a hundred grand extra office space in the city. Absolutely so right. It's just smarter ways of doing things. Whereas when I went out on my own in business and I had a PO box, no one would trust you if you had a PO box. True. But these days everyone knows smart working from offices, shared offices. Yeah. That's the way people do it these days. Yeah, well, we're, we're exactly the same, mate. We're on the homestead here in Clarendon, in the beautiful McCrown White Vale wine region just south of Adelaide. And I walk across the courtyard to our studio that's got full height glass looking down the valley. Uh, it's just from a lifestyle perspective, it's, you, you just can't beat it. And you just don't need the, the ego stroking big office corporate thing. Uh, and people, people actually, uh, aren't looking for that anymore, mate. Uh, the, the good news about technology is that uh, people have embraced it and uh, can see the merits in in doing it a whole lot more simply and having a lot more fun, mate. Um, yeah, awesome. That, that probably leads into another good book for people to to download or to get is the Four Hour Work Week by um, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, yeah. And again, that's a really really good book to get you over having to have all these overheads and to have to work hard for yourself, yeah, and to learn to outsource. Yeah, it's a very good tip. Mate, uh, sort of coming to a close, and you've been very generous with your time, mate, but if you were to talk to a, someone who's just leaving school, what would you advise them to invest their time, their money and their skills in to create freedom? I think it comes down to this um, Simon Sinek why thing. You've got to find a reason. So if you've got nowhere to aim for, you're not hungry for it, nothing's going to happen. And so it's not to say that everyone needs to be materialistic. You just need to have a goal. So what I've learned in in my 25 years is the biggest wealth you can create is freedom and choice. It's not the money, but quite often you need the money to give you that freedom and choice of uh, what do you want to do today, who do you want to hang around with, where do you want to physically do it. You've generally got to have money to be able to do that. Otherwise, like most people will be um, doing the rat race. So I think you really need to find that and get really hungry for it. And everything else is out there. Like there's so many podcasts now, there's so many books. All this education is so cheap, just like you mentioned. If anything, there's too much. But the answers are there. You just need to go out and, 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 and go and get it. 
and there really is no excuse for for not getting it if you really really want it and there's plenty of examples of people that have come from tough backgrounds immigrants no money no education and they've done it and it's because they're hungrier they've got a bigger why than anyone else yeah so i think that's the biggest thing you you just got to find your reason for living and, and what you're really motivated by yeah not very well said mate but um it's that's been a, an awesome chat. Uh, for those that are listening in, what's what's next, new and exciting for Chris Gray and your empire? Oh look, I've just uh, broke my axle on my stretch limousine in the outback, and it's seven and a half grand to uh, for poor old NRMA to bring my uh, <laughs> my rally car back. And uh, a lot of my life now is about cars and having fun and doing stuff. <laughs> um, and so I, I just want to really want to live it live that and, and we just raised effectively as a group $800,000 for uh, Cancer Council which was an amazing thing Fantastic. and I met an organiser that his personal goal is to raise $50 million for Cancer Council he lost both his parents to cancer so I yeah. spend a lot of my time with another group called the Entrepreneurs Organisation yeah. and this is lots of business owners, entrepreneurs that are self-help and they're, they're, they're peer-to-peer peer-to-peer learning and so I probably spend 80 or 90% of my time being around positive people that are doing good for other people and they're happy to share and learn just like we've been doing for the last hour or so here. Brilliant. I just want to hang around nice people. Yeah. That's, that's one of my biggest aims. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the, it can't be understated uh, hanging around great people, but the work that you've done uh, on the Mystery Box Rally uh, Yes, you're having a, a ball while you're doing it, and you're mixing with some s- sensational folks. But th- you know that eight hundred thousand dollars is no mean feat in terms of making a difference. In terms, you know, the the whole cancer research exercise. And I think uh, you know, getting to a stage in life where you've got the time, the passion, and the interest to be making that sort of a difference to a lot of lives uh, can't be understated, mate. So sensational effort on that front, mate. Uh, and, and that's what they say is, is, is make it fun. So if you've got to go out yeah. to work, make it fun. If you need to go and meet people, then do it in these kind of environments, and it's it's amazing. And and you get all these great conversations from people. So again, this guy's raising, I think, two and a half million a year now. His his goal is to push it to five million. And um, yeah, you imagine dying and saying, well, I put fifty million towards cancer council. Then um, yeah, it's an amazing thing. And there's plenty of charities there that uh, that want to help and and they want people to get involved. Fantastic. Excellent, mate. Uh, just to, to wrap it up then, for those that are looking to secure property through your buyer's agency in, I guess, primarily Sydney, but I think you've got bases in Melbourne and uh, Brisbane as well, uh, how can they get in touch with you, mate? Yeah, so look, the easiest thing is just go to yourempire.com.au or just Google Chris Gray. Um, the book that we talked about before, we have it as um, free download, so you can download the PDF or I think you can get it on iTunes as um, a free um uh, kind of podcast type thing if, uh, if you haven't got the time to read. Yeah. And look, that's where I put all my information. So I, we did the book about 10 years ago. We've produced, I don't know, 60 or 70,000 copies and we haven't changed a word in 10 years. There you go. The only thing we've changed is the examples 10 years ago was half a million dollars. Now they're, uh, a million dollars because that's the median price of, uh, property in, uh, in Sydney. Yeah. And that's the kind of 10 year rule of property doubling, which kind of, uh, semi proves that. But look, it really is all the information that if you want to go and do it yourself, read the book and uh, go and implement it wherever you want around the world. It's all about mentality. But again, if you want some help, yeah, we can help you in uh, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and um, yeah, just put into practice what I've done for myself. Brilliant, mate. Excellent. I really appreciate you uh, taking uh, time out of your day, mate, to 
have a chat to uh, myself and the rest of the listeners. Uh, we'll My pleasure. Co- we'll continue to uh, keep watching your new program on Sky, uh, Your Money. And uh, I, I, I loved seeing you in the tux, mate, with the board shorts underneath. So Yeah, uh, no, I had to be done once, and I thought, what's the worst thing they can do is they can sack me, but, um, <laughs> yeah, who cares? <laughs> Fantastic, Chris. We'll keep in touch. Thanks for your time, mate. Wonderful. Thank you. Cheers. Well, Freedom Fighters, how good was that? To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. That's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au. Or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you live forever and live as if die.